This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Morning. Hi, Dr. Shane. Are you swinging around on that chair? Am I going to have to strap you down? Um, putting hands under the chair. <laughs> you got to start them off early. Uh, Dr. Crystal, you're back. Yay! It's nice to be back in the Triple R studio. Where you been? Oh, you know, just off gallivanting, doing, doing this stuff. and that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I had a uh, a small biological experiment to tend to. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, N equals two for you, is thing. N equals two. Yeah. I know. Yeah, you've yeah. always got to have a replicate. Yeah. Well, the second one's nothing like the first. Let me tell you. <laughs> totally different. And Dr. Ray, how are you? I'm good, Dr. Shane. Thanks. Yep. All well. Yes, yes. In fact, we, we have the anniversary of our biological experiment today. Oh, really? What are you doing here, can I just ask? Oh, it happens to be a uh, play center laser tag Star Wars-themed birthday party this afternoon. So. <laughs> was, that, was that your choice, Dr. Ray? No, no, his. <laughs> you trained him well. Yeah. <laughs> you trained him well, you have. Yes, you, <laughs> yes, yeah. you have. You've done well. Now, let's get into some news. We've got some great guests for you coming up, though, folks. Um, some really interesting topics today, actually. I was very thrilled when I saw what the guests were going to be talking about today, but we're going to start you off with some news. Dr. Laura, what have you got for us? Well, what I have got is, has anybody ever wondered, well, I'm sure anybody will have wondered this at some point, why flamingos stand and sleep on one leg? Has anybody thought about it? Because if they didn't sleep on at least one, they'd fall down. <laughs> so they can two. So they can rest one at a time. Well, yeah. So there are loads of hypotheses out there, and a lot of people think that you know, so they can, you know, they might switch off one side of the brain, or so they can rest one leg, or also oh. hands under the table. Sorry, Shane. Um, but so there's been the, one of the major hypotheses is that also that they can keep warm, so they can t- tuck one leg under. But this was kind of really um, looked at for the very first time in a study published in Biology Letters. And they actually showed that it's just really simply because it requires less effort to stand on one leg than two. Now, when you think about a flamingo's anatomy, this is really quite surprising. I didn't know that, you know, when you think of a flamingo's leg and you see that bent backward knee, that's actually the ankle. So half of the flamingo is pure foot, what you're seeing. The thigh is horizontal. The knee's actually in the feathers. So what the flamingo's actually doing is it's on tiptoes or in a yoga chair pose, sat down on one leg. That's really hard, right? That's cool. That's very, very difficult. But they absolutely do this with no, they do this with no muscle activity at all. So in this study, they, um, got some flamingo cadavers from a local zoo, which were, you know, not euthanized for the purpose of this study, but humanely for other reasons. And if you take a dead flamingo and you just sort of prop it up on one leg, there are videos of this in the journal. They're actually, you know, pretty cool, actually. Um, you can just lock the, the leg locks into a position and then the flamingo stands upright. So it's standing upright on one leg with zero muscle activity at all. But if you put it onto two, it falls over. So it's actually, wow. it's, it's, it's more gra- stable. Yeah, more it's stable. more stable. Mm. It's, it's passive. It's gravity driven, holding up its own body weight. So that's really cool, right? I'm, I'm amazed at, um, at how someone came up with the idea to do the experiment. <laughs> yeah. And I'm still caught with the ankle. I know. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was like, a knee. I thought it was a knee. Yeah. Well, my, my mum's travelling in South America at the moment and she shared this fact with me only last week. So yeah, I'm new uh, to this also. But, so, but old compared to us, like. So, yeah, we just got it. We're they, freaking out. They also took baby flamingos, which, by the way, are grey, so they only become pink because of the food that they eat, and they took these baby kind of grey little cute flamingos. What are they eating? Uh, crustaceans. Krill. Algae turns them pink. Oh, uh, is that what Krill. they eat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, I've only ever seen them in Vegas. 
<laughs> so they put these they put these baby flamingos on this kind of um, Wii Fit type board, and then they watch how they sway. And they put them on one leg; they're really stable. They put them on two legs, and these flamingos fly all over the show. So one leg is that locks into place, and that's how they stay stable. So, so they only really so, need the second leg to move. Yeah, to yeah. walk. That's yep. interesting. Hmm. I'm still blown away by the fact that their thigh is horizontal the, the whole time. Yeah. So it's not really a. Th- I mean, it's no longer really a thigh. I mean, so when, they, thigh when bone. they so when they walk, I mean, you, this probably wasn't in the article. Do they stand up higher? Like, do they suddenly get taller? No, I think they're they kind walk? of like leaning forward yeah. a little. So bit. it's not really being used as a thigh because I mean, for us, you know, the thigh muscle does you know a big portion of the the works. So they're not really doing that. You no. think. but well, I'm I'm blown away by these videos of sort of them poking the dead flamingo and just sort of you can poke it and it just stays completely yeah. stable because this leg's locked down. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I work in a school of engineering where there's biomechanics people, so they use a lot of dead things, and 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 flamingos would be easy to watch compared to some of their other videos because, oh, yeah. you know, biomedical research on other dead things? objects, not 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 fun movies. So the, the, I'm kind of curious about the flamingo one. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> All right, before we get into too many dead things, uh, Doctor Crystal, let's move on. Well, Save us. I'm actually continuing the, evo- the, the oh, isn't what? evolution weird theme okay. um, by talking about a question which, um, if if you happen to be the parent of a small child, you might have been asked: is why a whale? Why do why are whales so big? How did whales mm. get so big? You mm. know, if you're going to Melbourne Museum, they've got that um, massive. big yeah, massive yeah. and that and that massive. Um, uh, skeleton of the blue whale at Melbourne Museum is actually only a young whale. Mm. It's actually mm. only about sort of 20 metres long. And it's hauntingly massive. And it's hauntingly massive. But imagine if it's a third as big yep. again. You know, blue whales get up to 30 metres because they're the biggest animals that have ever existed on Earth, bigger than the dinosaurs. Um, you know, they are the last of the giant megafauna. If you, mm. you know, think about when we used to have giant insects and giant kangaroos and giant wombats. I mean, we've got a giant whale in the ocean, but we kind of don't really think about it as the last of the megafauna. Um, and I was really fascinated this week by some new research that's come out of the University of Chicago, which was actually a collaboration with the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian. And I think it's a great example of how there are some fantastic collections in museums that are still giving us new knowledge today because um, these scientists examined the collection of the fossilised um, uh, uh, whale bones and skulls to actually model the evolutionary path of whales because it turns out whales haven't been around very long because if you think about it, whales are mammals and they actually um, sort of evolved when animals came out onto the land but then went back into the water. So whales in an evolutionary term have only been around for about 30 million years. So that's actually not particularly long. And most of that time, the whale species were were really quite small. So whales only really grew up to about 10 metres until about 3 million years ago when, boom, all of a sudden, they all went giant. Hmm. So, they, so they've gone back and they've had a look at the um, the whale skulls, the fossilised whale skulls of um, extinct species, but also of species today, um, and worked out that you can get a good correlation between the size of the skull and the jaw and the actual indication of the, the whole size of the whale. And what they found was that, yeah, about two or three million years ago, all these whales just all went giant independently. So there's all these different independent species of whales that all kind of went boom. And the, the researchers sat back and thought, well, how did this happen independently? You know, that all these whale species suddenly became giant. What else was going on in the world at that time? So about, you know, three million years ago was actually um, at the, there was actually an onset of quite a lot of ice ages and it, and, and the um, formation of ice completely restructured some of the ocean currents. So there was this big change in the way in which um, nutrients and, and water was distributed throughout the globe and it resulted in 
these big upwellings of nutrient-rich water coming to the surface from the deep and basically creating these um, all-you-can-eat whale buffets at very specific locations around the ocean because, you know, these upswelling of nutrient-rich water led to an algal bloom, lots of phytoplankton, zooplankton, krill, and you can imagine that these whales were drawn to these very specific clusters of, of, of huge amounts of food. And so whales got big. And, and there was an advantage of big being big was that you could then travel to the next all-you-can-eat buffet that was kind of on the other side of the ocean. And so, so it's kind of like a bit of a feed-forward mechanism that these whales suddenly became massive. Um, and I guess what the, the other thing I really think is interesting about this research is it just shows how exquisitely specific um, changes in our oceans are to the evolution and to the survival and prognosis of a lot of our um, uh, animal species mm. and how very influential some of these big climate shifts can be on the animals in our ocean. Mm. Um, and, and I guess going forwards, we'll have to look at how, you know, current changes in ocean climate are then having an impact on our whale species because they don't grow as big as they do, they used to anymore. It's yeah. quite rare to find a big 30 metre whale. Well, they're old, but it's just they're, part well, of the problem. It's part yeah. of the problem is some of the hunting um, mm. and some of the, um, but now we've had a, wh- a ban on, um, on a whale hunting and an exclusion of a lot of these quite unique species um, and, and it's also, well, you know, is there actually enough nutrients available in the mm. ocean to support these giant megafauna? It's interesting, we're going to have to get some ecology people in here that talk about evolution or get, get uh, Dr Ewan in because I still never understand why some species get bigger and some species just get more prolific in number and so without predatory control you know, one or the other will happen. And, and in this case, there's just more food. So why isn't there just more whales? Why suddenly these monstrous-sized whales? I mean, what's, what's so the they real think, advantage? They, think, they think the advantage was that they could get more miles per gallon um, out of the food <laughs> well, yeah. to get to the next uprising swelling. Yeah, so yeah. so if these um, if these um, ocean currents that were resulting, this nutrient-rich, mm. quite clustered, like it wasn't mm, the whole okay. ocean was full of food, that in these very specific places, that there was only the big whales only that big could travel there. between, yeah. you know, had enough mm. fuel in the tank to get from one the other. That's the hypothesis yeah. that's been put forward in this new paper. Yeah, mm, sounds interesting. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane. Um, well, I, I have a story about a bug, but I, I fear, is it is it cicada or cicada? Cicada. 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 <laughs> Where'd you cicada. grow up? Cicada. <laughs> tomato. Tomato. Well, All right. It could be a New South Wales castle, castle thing. Yeah, oh. so I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne, cicada. so it's definitely a cicada. All right, well, we're going to go with cicadas in, in North America. Um, cicadas come out at, at different times. They're periodic. Some come out annually. Some come out every 13 years. Some come out every 17 years. And so there's an expectation on the east coast of the North America that you should see the 13-year cicada out. Hmm. But they're also seeing the 17-year. Because okay. they classify them in broods but so one set of cicadas is coming out four years early and their best guess is because so cicadas of course turn into a a nymph stage that lives underground it Mm -hmm. has five stages of growth and it takes a long time to grow and it only grows when the you get in the soil when it's warm so it kind of goes dormant in the winter well their best guess is they've had a lot more warm weeks of growing so the 17 year cicada is actually ready four years earlier they're mostly guessing because it's been mm-hmm. warmer and so it's growing faster. Um, and that might go, okay, that's fine. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's yet another ecological blinker light of, Hey, there's something different something about the different. climate. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, but it does have an implication because normally what's fascinating about cicadas is they all grow. They might even grow at slightly different rates at 64 degrees is when they tend to come out of the soil, 64 Fahrenheit. But 
for a brood, they tend to release at the same time. They also have this internal clock that connects them so that they all come out at the same time because it's defense, much better defense against predators like birds and things. But the ones that are coming out early are not coming out at the same time. They're kind of trickling out and they might breed, but they probably risk predators more than the other. So the they, other one that's the clocks are completely. Yeah. So their clocks are a little bit off and they're not, yeah, not synchronized with the other bugs. So I just kind of went, really? I mean, when hmm. they come out, you know, they, you walk into them at night because they, they don't have, you know, they can fly into you. You run into them. They're quite large and disturbing sometimes and the red eyes can freak you out. So it, there's just more of them, but I just kind of went, wow, it's climate that's driving that. Their best guess is climate change is driving them coming out earlier. Mm. And it's interesting because if it was at any other time in the last hundred years, we might say, well, you know, there's, there's various shifts in, in climate that occur over long term periods. And we see, you know, El Nino is a great example of a decadal type process. And, and that could be the yeah. case for this one off. But, oh, it's a coincidence that, you, you know, I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of these coincidences well, all happening at the same time at the moment, which you'd say, well, hang on, if it smells like a duck and walks like a duck and, you know, <laughs> this probably, isn't, probably is. This isn't air temperature. This is ground, ground temperature. temperature. Yeah, that's even – because – and they can't be – they mustn't be very far under the ground. So, they're you know, because once you get no, kind to of a couple roots. of metres, you're basically, you know, at about 15 degrees no matter where you dig, whereas this is a few inches probably. Or uh, maybe up to half a metre. Yeah. They, they're, they're very sensitive to sap flow for trees because they live around trees. So when the trees feel temperature changes in their behaviour, that's actually – Kind of one of the things yeah. that I think influences yeah. it. Interesting stuff. Well, it's all it's all changing very rapidly, and sadly, I think we're going to do more and more of these sorts of stories over the coming years and in greater frequency. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. On the phone now, we have Professor Peter Veth, who's from the University of Western Australia, the Centre for Rock Art Research. Peter, can you hear us? Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, Shane. Now, um, you're doing some amazing work. Uh, I saw the press release during the week, and it was just just fascinating to see that you, you're looking at basically when our Indigenous Australians first arrived on, on the continent. So why don't you, first of all, give us a bit of an idea of what the, the previous thinking was. How, how were the numbers back then? It was sort of 45, 47,000 years or something? Yeah, look, there's been a range of numbers around for a while, and obviously um, Indigenous worldviews have people here all the time, but the, um, the sort of chronologies that were coming out of the sites were sitting around 40, 50, and then there was a major revision because of the um, critiques around different dating techniques that pushed it back to sort of mid-40s, mm-hmm. and, and particularly because all of the coastal areas which would have been originally settled around the water, um, just by where the sea level was at that time, we thought it made sense to try and target relics, um, if you like, windows. That's the Atlantis metaphor of um, the original coastline. So we started mm. looking on the northwest shelf, big islands there. We worked on the Aru Islands, which are now um, part of, if you like, eastern Indonesia, but they're originally Australasian, Australian, and we've been working on those, I guess, for 25 years to try and get the mm. evidence. Now, now, tell us a bit about Barrow Island, because this is where you've been doing all the, the work most recently, and this is about 60 kilometres off the, the Pilbara coast. What's special about, about this particular island? Yeah, look, um, as I said, we were trying to target um, a big island on the old um, shelf. So they're called continental islands. Burrow is the second biggest island off WA. And the thing that makes it really useful is its limestone. It's an ancient limestone. And limestone is incredibly good for preserving, um, you know, dietary remains, the shellfish and animals and, and objects that people ate and made and wore and used um, to produce all sorts of other things. So, so we actually targeted some... We targeted the whole of the island. We surveyed where we could, 
and we found an area of rock shelters and caves up in the northwest which um which were good they had material in them um even though the island was abandoned from seven thousand years ago when it did get isolated by rising sea levels mm-hmm. but we found the old material and it did go back to over fifty thousand years in fact we have luminescent states going back to 53,000 years, but we use a conservative model and technique where we check all the different labs and techniques and end up with this range of uh, 51 to about 46,000. Mm. Now, talk us through, when you when you say you go and you have a look at the island and so forth and you look for the particular samples there, I mean, talk us through how you do that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't imagine they're just lying around on the beaches. I mean, this is obviously something that's been isolated from the external environment for a quite a protracted period. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, sometimes you do see things lying on the surface, but they're usually not that old um, unless there's been erosion and you're getting older materials exposed. So on Barrow, there have been a few artefacts seen um, that were lying in the open, but nothing definite had been confirmed in the caves or rock shelters. So we surveyed a range of about 20 that looked quite quite potential, like they would um, be good for human occupation. And then we did some test pinning. Um, so we do a small controlled excavation, um, uh, and we went down about 20 centimetres um, and found nothing. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, that was worth a try. Yep. But then I thought, well, the island was abandoned 7,000 years ago. Materials continue to blow in. The limestone weathered. Um, we've got to keep going, and we did. And about um, two or three centimetres later, there the shellfish and the artefacts started to pop out. So this amazing, frozen, totally intact record in the biggest cave of all booty started to come out. And that dates back to about 6,800 years ago when the sea reached its present level and people were living on the edge of the coast and the island was still just connected to the mainland. So they'd have been going out probably on a big limestone peninsula and... The food remains there are stunning. You know, there's like 40 species of shellfish and crayfish and mm. uh, all sorts of large and small fish. Just really, really rich. Yeah. Mm. Are we are we talking shovels or paintbrushes? How, how do you how do you actually do the excavation? Because I mean, these things must be fairly fairly fragile. Yeah, they are fragile, and we go really slow. So in the beginning, you might um, you might use trowels, and then as we slow down, we are actually sieving everything down in four millimetre, two millimetre, one millimetre sieves, which is really tiny, mm. right down to tiny fragments of little rodents that would have lived there in the cave and not been part of the diet, and owl remains and so forth. And then we start to go down into two, three centimetre spits or little units, and then we might even go down to like layers of sand grain. So it is literally going down from shovels to trowels to brushes to... Yeah, it took us three years um, just to excavate that one cave um, on and off during the middle of the year. Um, so, yeah, three years just to get that sequence, do the dating, and the analysis is in the first stage, mm-hmm. and there'll be downstream analysis by postgraduates uh, who will be working on different aspects for, like, the next three to five years. Yeah. Now, this may just be my complete ignorance, but when, when I think of Indigenous cuisine and, and the sorts of things that, that were eaten. I, I don't think of shellfish and crayfish. And uh, I mean, this is sort of a, a change in that, or is it just that we don't normally talk about that as much? Well, you know, around the coast, you see middens right from Tasmania through Victoria. You will actually see shellfish remains and seafood, but it does kind of get locked into the recent period for some reason in, mm-hmm. in the popular or public narratives. Yeah. And so we did, what's unusual about this, although it was what we wanted, was to find early evidence of the full diet, not just the land-based, you know, macropods, uh, hair wallabies, 
bilbies, the things that people would have eaten on the mainland. And it was a desert, remember, a desert northwest maritime edge. Mm. But um, here you're seeing people actually using coastal resources. And, and they're doing it at a time when sea levels were actually quite unstable. So they were going up and down a fair bit. They were possibly changing pace at a level that would have meant some uh, marine communities would not have been able to keep pace with that sea level change. But we do actually have a range of economic dietary species, including mangroves, mangrove species like mangrove forests, right at the time of the last ice age when sea level was minus 130 metres. So you could walk to Tasmania, to New Guinea. Mm. Um, most of the models had suggested, of the paleoclimate models as well as the archaeology models, suggested that these coastal areas were probably not that productive. And they were different. There's no doubt about that. We're not talking about the same climate or animals um, as today, but um, yeah, there, there are communities there and people are hitting the coast and they're using those resources and they're coming back into the interior and they're combining them with all these other resources. So, you know, the first colonists, if you like, landed, had marine competencies, but they didn't turn their back on the sea. Uh, they continue to use coastal resources and then adopt a whole range of new desert animals that they wouldn't have seen before. They would not have seen, obviously, the macropods. They wouldn't have seen a lot of the lizards and skinks and things which are totally uh, Australian, Australasian, and they just adopt them almost immediately. And that's that's truly fascinating, and it shows you just how adaptable and skilled those um, earlier uh, folk were and their descendants, it's one of those skill bases that just continues here. Yeah. Peter, it's Dr. Crystal here. Um, speaking of the Hi. descendants of those um, early uh, Australians, how have you engaged the traditional owners of the land in this research? Yeah, um, because the island was um, not sort of part of people's historic use, um, it hadn't actually had proper heritage surveys. There'd been a few um, slight surveys uh, for different mining applications offshore, but we we engaged um, two groups. Um, there are groups that have interests on the mainland and some have historic links with some of the island's uh, recent pearling history. That was not fully documented, but we actually found um, two um, major barracoons or indentured labour camps on the island where we had evidence of buildings, um, glass artefacts made by Kimberley people who are obviously not from the area. They must have been brought in from the north, the Lassipedes. So we've actually been presenting that material back to the communities on the mainland. We had people come out and participate in, in the work. And, um, in fact, we're going up this week to talk to a couple of the groups in Onslow at uh, Karatha with some uh, follow-up information. Yeah. Mm. Peter, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, what's next for you now? Well, look, there's, there's some other targets on Barrow Island. Um, there's some big open sites that were um, to the south of where we worked that were only found in the last couple of days, of course. Mm. <laughs> and they're eroding and they've got bone and other kinds of material and they're probably quite old. And you've got to remember this is a unique record because you haven't got the last 7,000 years of um, occupation and um, other materials. So it's like frozen and gives you a unique early window. So we think working on that would be worthwhile. Um, we, we're putting management um, suggestions and other plans into place for the island and I think the um, particularly the postgrads will be going back there to do follow-up work on the ecology and particularly on things like you can do things isotopic work on the enamels of the um, macropods of the hair wallabies mm. and because they're archaeological and they're well preserved that's being worked on now to actually do a climatic and environmental reconstruction Mm. So they're not just dietary remains, they're actually little time capsules that tell you about precipitation, climate, 
a whole range of other things, and that's that's really quite exciting. Peter, just finally, uh, I mean, we, we keep this date keeps getting pushed back. You know, every time we hear it, almost at the moment. There's, I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a point where Australia was cut off in terms of the land bridge, bridges that were there, and that was when the population got isolated you know, on this continent. But is, is there a barrier at the other end as well? I mean, could could it could it be that you know a year from now you tell us it's seventy five thousand years? I mean, is there is there a, a a barrier in terms of the earliest that it could have been? Yeah, look, I mean, those early dates are lacking for um, much of the um, land areas from Africa through to Australia. Mm-hmm. There's a work in the Sahara um, by Mike Petraglia and teams from um, Oxford and Max Planck have been finding early modern um, human uh, dates remains back in the 100,000s plus, but we don't have them for much of the intervening area. I, I think modern people are, are fully skilled and equipped and cognitively advanced and so they can you know, spread, diffuse, um, adapt, probably retract as well, which probably is what the pattern is for the early um, dispersions out of Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wouldn't be surprised and, uh, you know, I, I would predict um, that the dates will go back over 60,000 very soon, probably this year with forthcoming work by other teams. And then they should be, they should be found in neighbouring areas of Ireland, Southeast Asia, but it requires the techniques that go beyond the radiocarbon Barrier yep. like luminescence and other techniques to be used more systematically, and that's that's what's going to happen. So it's a really, yeah, it's an ex, it's a rapidly changing, exploding, and fascinating history of uh, modern human capabilities. Yeah. Mm. Peter, I promised you I'd get you out of uh, out of town there by nine thirty. I know you have some things to do, so thanks so much for chatting to us today, and um, good luck with this ongoing work. It's really fascinating. So well done. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Shane. Really appreciate the interview. No problem. Professor Peter Beth is from the University of Western Australia, the Centre for Rock Art Research, and really uh, fascinating stuff. In fact, if you get a chance, folks, uh, look up the stuff on the web because there's there's a fantastic photograph of the cave and the excavation site, and it just, you know, to me it's just Indiana Jones stuff. It looks really cool, and I think they, they do use brushes a lot. So, fun stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Dr Lyndon Ashcroft. She's from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and Lyndon is a historical climatologist. I think the first we've had on the show. Lyndon, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me, Dr. Shane. Look, it's great to have you in here because it's funny. We were just talking, you probably heard in the green room, our last guest, we were talking about, you know, some of the, the history stuff that he's, he's pulling out. But you've been looking at the Bureau of Meteorology's sort of climate record, if you will. Which goes back, what, uh, 100 years? How, how far back? Yeah, so the, the Bureau of Meteorology's record goes back to about the start of the 20th century, 1910 for temperature and about 1900 for rainfall. Yeah. Is, is it? I mean, when did it, the, sorry, when did the Bureau start as such? The Bureau started, in, the Bureau started in 1908, and I think okay. they, they picked those starting times for their high-quality data sets because that is when we have coverage over the whole country. Okay. Uh, for temperature, they also picked 1910 as the starting date because before that time, thermometer were kept in strange or not standard kind of thermometer houses. So the temperature observations are affected by non-climatic things. So they decided to start in 1910. Okay. Now, if we're talking about climate and we're looking at changes in climate, you know, we've had our colleague Ailey in here who's mm-hmm. who's off doing other things at the moment, but she'll be back soon, um, talking about this a lot. We, uh, I mean, 100 years or 100 and... 10 years or whatever the number is, is not long, is it? I mean, that's that seems a bit problematic to me if you want to look at long-term climate cycles. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, what's your opinion of that? Is that long enough or just too well, short? Well, 
I guess it depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking at human-induced climate change, mm -hmm. 100 years or 110 years is sort of enough to see the increasing in increases yep. in temperature because the temperature increase really starts in about 1950, 1960. Mm -hmm. New research has suggested that the climate change impact can be seen further back in time, yeah. but in Australia the trend really ramps up in about 1960. But because Australia is such a land of droughts and flooding rains, we do have these wild swings between mm -hmm. droughts and floods, largely due to El Nino, as like yep. you were talking about before. Going further back in time in that respect is really useful, so we can try to figure out if the millennium drought in, in the 1990s and 2000s, for example, has happened in the past or if there have been longer ones in the past or more extreme flooding to try to prepare ourselves with a baseline of understanding so then we can figure out, well, what's climate change going to do on top of that? Mm. So so what do we do in terms of, because I'm thinking tree rings, mm -hmm. but, um, but uh, something tells me this isn't going to cut it in terms of temperature or some of the numbers that are comparable to the Bureau's record. I mean, mm -hmm. so, so what do we, I mean, can you use that sort of stuff or is that just not good enough? No, no, absolutely you can, but the quality of those kind of tree ring, paleoclimate, natural records are dependent on how long an instrumental record you have to compare them to. So the right. longer time you have to calibrate your tree rings mm -hmm, or your mm -hmm. ice cores, the better understanding you'll get going further back in time. So what my work was doing, I was working with some people who were paleoclimatologists and I also worked with some historians, was trying to find historical numerical data to draw the Bureau's record further back in time. Okay, so this is my, my Uncle Bill down at, you know, Queenscliff, you know, went outside and... Uh, feels like about 18. I mean, what, what, what are we talking about here? In <laughs> Not terms of quite Uncle Bill. I mean, there might have been a couple of Uncle Bills around, but I was looking for uh, numerical observations that have been kept in the archives. I looked, I spent a lot of time at the Bureau of Meteorology's library and they've got some observations that go back to about the 1860s, but they haven't been assessed very in a very detailed way for quality. Okay. So I looked at those and I also went, spent a lot of time at the library here in Melbourne. I went to the State Library of New South Wales trying to find not quite Uncle Bill, but, you know, Uncle Bill who was really interested in science right, yep, or farmers yep, who yeah, yeah. were really, really relied on the weather for their success or failure every year. So I tried to find instrumental weather observations that they had taken to put them together and see what they had to say. And how often when you looked at these records did it have details of how the records were actually recorded? Because I can imagine someone writing down the temperature for you know, year on end if they were a farmer, but did they write down, I, you know, I used a Johnson & Johnson thermometer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. What did they make back then? How, would, how, did, how do you determine that and determine the accuracy? Yeah, that's the thing that people don't often think about Getting the data is one thing, but what you really need, what you're talking about, is metadata. Mm. So those are data about data. Yeah. And that is just as important, particularly when you go further back in time. But actually, modern weather observations need this information as well, where the thermometer was kept, how high the barometer was off the ground, how many trees were near the rain gauge, that kind of stuff. Right. So it was a two-step search, one, to find the numbers, and then I had to do a lot of research to try to learn about the person who took the records, how they took them. And some of that information can be easy to find, and, and some of it is, is much harder to find. So on the thermometer aspect, how long have thermometers been a standard industrialized fabricated object? How much variability is there in a thermometer pre-1900? Yeah, there's a fair bit of variability. And even now, because we use sort of electrical thermometers now, there's, mm -hmm. there's studies being done to try to figure out the calibration differences. It's all very technical. Uh, the calibration differences between mercury thermometers and electric thermometers. But thermometers 
the first fleet brought thermometers over in 1788 and there were instruments, thermometers that existed before that as well. The first one, I think, was in the 1600s. Oh, hmm. So um, I want to hear a story about some of the, the best data treasures that you found, like oh. like who who are these people or, or when did you come across something and you went, wow, yep, you're a bankable, reliable source of data? Well, you want to hear a good story. Yeah. Okay, I can tell you a good story and probably tell you a bad story as well. Yeah, yeah give us both. So yeah. a good story I think would be George Strickland Kingston. He lived in Adelaide and he took rainfall observations every day from 1839 until about 1878, I think. Wow. He took two breaks, once because he had to go up to Borough in northern South Australia, and once he had to take a few weeks off because he broke his leg and he couldn't walk. But apart from that, he took rainfall <laughs> records every day. And what a trooper. What a trooper. And, and where did you find George's, his records? Where were his records, he he was he was sort of a, a politician and a surveyor. He was really interested in knowledge, I think. So he published a lot in the uh, academic journals of the time and he yeah. wrote these, he did these giant graphs, like A0-sized published yeah. graphs of rainfall every year and stuff. So and I actually the, found those at the Bureau Library, the Bureau yeah, the, of Meteorology. The almanac of information, exactly. you know, 1812, you know, yeah. those, those sorts of documents. Yeah. And what has that allowed you to um, to use the data for, that data set for? Well, now Adelaide has a continuous rainfall record from 1839 to the present. Wow. And Adelaide is... is very susceptible to El Nino and La Nina effects and also changes in the Indian Ocean can have a big impact in Adelaide as well. So we can tease that out going 70 years further back in time than we could before. Mm. It, and you mentioned a really bad example. Well, the bad example actually comes from Melbourne, which is a bit of a shame. You, but what? <laughs> I know. Uh, his name was John Pascoe Faulkner. Many of you might know him. He's one of the early settlers of, mm. of Melbourne. He claims to be one of the founders of Melbourne. And he came in 1839. He set up a pub, I think, on the corner of where it's now Collins and King Street. And he had a thermometer. And when I found out about that, I thought, oh, the first weather records in Melbourne. That's so exciting. He kept his thermometer in a cool room, which I'm pretty sure was the cellar. <laughs> of the pub and he just took observations whenever he felt like it and so when I was graphing up I typed up all of his temperature records and I graphed them up and they're they're pretty much useless so that was a bit of a disappointment. So so one of the things that that I find interesting here is that even if you had someone who had a thermometer that was basically calibrated poorly so let's say it was always out by 10 degrees (laughs) I mean you're looking for long-term trends in climatology so did that does that matter so much I mean can you pull out a record from someone in Melbourne that, that, around that time mm. and say, okay, I've got this, this, this person took these records for 30 years, but they were always out by 10 degrees. Are you able to sort of cross-reference that with other records uh, from the bureaus or the archives as well and then sort of pull them all together in a way that's essentially recalibrated, that, that whole metadata problem? Yeah, absolutely you can. As you say, you really need overlapping sources. You need mm. neighbouring stations if you can find them. If you're looking at very specific, you know, precise temperature measurements, it can be a little bit difficult. But what you can do, if it's always out by 10 degrees, you've got 30 years, you can show that, oh, this year was relatively warmer, relatively cooler than this year. And then you can cross-reference that with other stations that exist at the time and also Mm. documentary accounts that exist at the time to try to tease out how reliable those records are. And... Uh, it's funny, I'm just such a, a lover of history of, of instrumentation because I think many of the people you're talking about actually had a lot more knowledge of the proper use of instrumentation than what our researchers and the public have today. And, mm-hmm. in fact, you know, the, especially the digital I'll just read it and believe it syndrome is everywhere at the moment, mm. whereas back then a lot of these people, they would calibrate them every single
single day. I mean, are you finding that, that, that when you look at the just the meticulous nature of some of these results, it's incredible? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm working at the moment with a group of researchers in New South Wales and the grandson of a guy came and said, look, I've got my, my grandfather's observations mm. for 40 years and he... Would, he was in Armadale, so about four hours away yep. from Sydney, but he would regularly write to the Sydney meteorologist and say, can you help me calibrate my instruments? And with all of his observations were also small calibration notes because you have to think about not only the wood expanding and contracting with temperature mm-hmm. or if there's leakage of the mercury or all of these tiny little things that you don't think about, but they can really add up over time. Yeah. So these are some of Australia's earliest citizen scientists. Absolutely. Um, and do you think that we still have those people today? Like, because, I mean, as Dr Shane says, it's all digital now. You can turn the radio on. You can Google what the bomb says. Are there still people out there oh, yeah. uh, taking these observations? Yeah. And, and do we have current... Do you have knowledge of current living records that are happening in that citizen science space? Absolutely, yeah. And I actually think it's happening more and more, which is really, it's really great. And it's one beautiful thing is that a lot of these records we're discovering in Australia, these historical records, are being digitised by citizen scientists. Yeah, that's cool. So we're connecting people who care about it now with the people who cared about it back then. But there's a growing and growing community of people who take weather observations, farmers or retired scientists or all sorts of people who have got weather stations at home and they're recording the observations. The Bureau of Meteorology has its own citizen science website. It's called WOW, the WOW Network, where you can submit your own observations. And so I think that community is growing more and more. And as, you know, money gets tighter and observing the weather and climate isn't that sexy a thing financially, maybe we'll be relying on these citizen scientists more and more. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I was actually thinking about sources as well, and I was wondering were there any instances of industries that actually had kept records that you've been able to get access to or have you contacted, I don't know if it would have been railroads or mining at the time, but where they might have cared about the weather and maybe kept their own records internally as a company. Do you see that at all? Yes, in some places, I know that the wine industry in Australia kept very long Mm. quality weather records and the agricultural associations, the Agricultural Society down in Tasmania in New South Wales, I've used some records from them. I've also seen examples of people, for example, somebody has reconstructed the rainfall in Indonesia back to about the 1820s using data from, I think it was a road building industry. Uh, They counted, because they didn't work every time that it rained, so from that information they could figure out mm. the rainfall um, totals, oh, well, the number of rain days every year back to the 1820s. That's, and presumably they didn't sort of take a day off when it was just misty rain. No, you really <laughs> so had to mean a, it. Yeah, that's right. Now, Linda, before we let you go, you've got to, you've got to tell us about this. Um, what I'm just imagining is this massive vault with a huge door that the Bureau has of these old records. I mean, please tell me it's not some sort of fancy room down at, you know, Docklands or something. I mean, what, what, what's this... What's this Look, you, you got that look on your face like it is, but I have this image of this amazing old library of records that they must have kept because it's one of Australia's longest-running organisations. Yeah, you're right. They do have... It is in a fancy room in Docklands, but ah. within the fancy room <laughs> is a smaller room that has a big, heavy door. Oh, cool. And then you have to get access to enter. <laughs> and in there, they've got some old, handwritten, beautiful stuff. And back in the day, every state had its own bureau office. So mm, I know the yeah. South Australian office as well has these boxes and boxes of archives because the 
the meteorologist back in the 1870s there, Charles Todd, he was just such a passionate guy and he would keep all of these newspaper clippings. So they've got 40 to 50 years of his weather records and all newspaper clippings that happened about weather that happened all across the country. You can see them all online, actually, if you Google mm. Charles Todd folios, you can see them and they're just a beautiful way to spend an afternoon. And so there are... There are beautiful grey and white boxes floating around, but they're getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, presumably you could keep doing this for a while. And there must be huge international interest in this data, presumably. I mean, because these records for Australia, you know, this is it, right? I mean, Yeah, absolutely. The Southern Hemisphere is quite underrepresented mm. in this kind of field of historical climatology. In the Northern Hemisphere, lots of people have been doing it for a long time, but in the Southern Hemisphere, the field is growing and growing. So the observations that we've collected they are being contributed to international databases, yep. uh, which are then helping to improve climate models. And now we're kind of pulling all these things together. We've got observations across Australia and in New Zealand, some in South Africa as well and South America. And we're now building a community to put all these things together and represent in the Southern yep. Hemisphere. Before I let you go, are we able to incorporate Indigenous records of any type into this this ongoing sort of narrative or is, is that difficult? It's something that I'm really interested in pursuing in the future. I don't know a lot about Indigenous history and Indigenous environmental history. Obviously, their stories and their culture is very closely tied to the environment mm. and the climate. But from what I understand, that the, the way that Indigenous history is kept is not quite as linear as, you know, these words and numbers that right, we would write yeah. down. So it might be slightly harder to tease out this year is particularly wet, this year is particularly mm -hmm. dry, but I think it's something that we'd something love to, to work towards yeah. in the future. Lyndon, it's been fabulous talking to you and um, I think we could just keep talking to the end of the show, uh, but we won't. Um, we'll, we'll get you back at some stage and talk about how this has progressed because I think this is fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Thanks for having me. Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft is from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne and I think the first historical climatologist we've had on the show, which is super cool stuff. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. I can't do this justice, but the Juno spacecraft has been flying around Jupiter recently, which is taking some super amazing cool pictures. And basically, you need to look these up on the web, folks, because you'll look at them and go, that's not Jupiter. Well, guess what? It is Jupiter. It's just the bottom or the top of Jupiter, and they just look amazing. So instead of this one big boring red spot, there are just literally tens of small hurricanes and so forth just all over the place. It's just the most incredible imagery, and it just shows how little we know about um, this planet and, and some of the planets in our solar system. So this is from the same group that gave you the New Horizons probe. Talk about whack out a few hits in the inside of a couple of years. Um, but absolutely fantastic stuff. The other thing I wanted to briefly mention, though, is... Um, Beekeepers um, have lost 33% of their bees in 2016-17 in the US, according to recent um, surveys. Believe it or not, that's actually a good result. That's better than the previous year. So previous year was sort of well, well above that. So that's actually come down a little bit. And it's because there's, they think it's because there's particular mite that really causes problems with bees. And they've started to work on ways to halt this mites progress. So this is like the colony collapse um, yeah, that, yeah. that we've been seeing. So, so maybe we're pulling it back a bit? Yeah, pulling it back a little bit. I mean, 33% loss. I mean, the, the one thing that um, the researchers talked about was the idea that show me an industry where in one year a 33% loss is acceptable. Why is you, that a good thing? Well, well no, no, it's a good thing because it was higher than that previous couple of years. So 33% is actually better than it was previously. Still awful, but better. So 
They're making progress on the mite, but this is also neonicotoids and some yeah, of those pesticides a whole things. And uh, that's, cause stress on the hives too. And, and so it may be that they may not be able to bring it much better than what it's currently sitting at, which is not sustainable at all. So there's still a big issue there. And there are certain, you know, things like almonds and so forth. I mean, you just, they just don't get pollinated by anything else. It's bees or nothing. So, you know, there's a whole, whole range of our food supply here that's a threat, but there's, um, there's a website. Which I have to say, I think I did this story just so I could tell people about this website that you can go to. It's called, and this is literally for me the best website I've heard a title for in the last year. It's called beinformed.org. Mm. With two E's, I Two hope. E's. <laughs> but it's great. Get on, get on there, have a look because they have all this ongoing data collection. And a lot of it's surveys and community information as well. And it just drags all this data in and presents it beautifully on how the bee colonies across the, the US, it's a US site, um, are doing. And it really, I mean, it's, it's frightening stuff, but it's, it's good to have a look at the data and see how it's progressing. But yeah, 33%'s a better year than previous years. So I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it comes down to the question is what is a sustainable level? Like is 10% okay? Is 20% yeah. okay? Is 33%, you know, on the, on the path to recovery? Or are we still a long way off? Yeah. And, and look, I mean, there's a lot of beekeepers took part in this. There's um, almost 5,000 beekeepers actually over um, over 50 states um, in the US. So that was you know, pretty big. Um, and I think also some in Canada. But, you know, this is a big problem. And as you said, Dr. Ray, there's a lot of stuff causing it. So anyway, we're out of time. Uh, I've got to hand over to the team from Eat It. So Dr. Crystal, thanks so much. Good to see you again. It's, it's been, been very nice to be chatting science with you again. And you'll be back regularly as I will. usual. Dr. Laura. Thanks, Shane. It's been fun. You didn't whack the microphone I once. Didn't. They're very proud of you. Thank you. Good girl. You're you're, uh, you're learning. I think you're there. You're good. Uh, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Shane. It was fun. We'll see you again soon. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll chat to you again next week. Until then, remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.